Well, good evening. If you haven't looked at a bulletin yet, then you're in for a treat. And if you find yourself glancing down right now and seeing that it says tonight's message is from Leviticus, yes, that is serious. That's not a typo. In all honesty, it's a a joy and privilege to be here with all of you this evening. It's an honor to stand in this pulpit and preach the truth of God's Word, and I'm, I'm thrilled to be able to do that from the book of Leviticus. This really is one of the most neglected books of the, the Bible. This is certainly true in our, in our modern age today, and it's really to our own detriment. Many people have never read it. Maybe that's true for some of you. Others have been deeply confused by it. Maybe that is true for some of us. And for, for maybe a select few, this is the place where your annual Bible reading plan dies out in the middle of February. I'm not blaming anybody. I actually sympathize with you. Without a guide, this is a tough book to understand. And for many people, when it comes to Leviticus, I just think they don't know where to start. On its surface, it can appear so strange. I mean, it talks about animal sacrifices and the consecration and ordination of Israel's priesthood. There is an extended section on purity laws, which applied to the Israelites' diet and bodily discharges and skin diseases of various kinds. I know you'll return at some point in the future for that message. It has instructions and commands about Israel's annual practice known as the Day of Atonement. And in it, God repeatedly calls His people to holy living. They are not to be like the nations around them, not to be like the Egyptians, the place they came from, or the Canaanites, where they are going. They are to be different and distinct. And there's more than that. On and on we could could go. And when Christians attempt to approach this book today, some may view it simply as a book filled with outdated rules and foreign rituals and distant cultural practices that were for a people and a time far different from ours today. And on its surface, in many ways, this is, this is true. However, it's a book that is also filled with deep and rich truth. It declares a message that is desperately needed in the church today. We as the modern church in the American West are experiencing pressure from every side to bend to compromise, to acquiesce to each and every cultural pressure of the day. This book proclaims a message that is written to the people of God, critical for them to understand this is a book about distinctions. This is a book that helps us to see that God is distinct from us. And we're to be different and distinct from the people around us. And while it does contain details and particulars that are foreign, the principles that it proclaims are timeless and highly relevant for believers today. But if we want to understand this book rightly, then it is imperative that we try to view it in its appropriate context. We have to understand Leviticus as part of the larger biblical story. Now, some of you might have a favorite series of books or movies. I want you to think about that right now in your mind, whatever it is. I want you to think about that series for a moment. Think about the the storyline. Think about the plot that develops throughout. Think about the key characters. 
Think about the, the setting, the context that that story is developed in. And now I want you to imagine that you never read the first couple of books in that series. I want you to imagine you never saw the first few movies in that series. You just jumped right into the middle. You jumped right to the third installment. And you think about all the problems you'd have. You wouldn't understand the storyline that had been previously developed. You wouldn't know the central characters. You'd have no background knowledge of the plot and the setting. You wouldn't know the key themes. You, you wouldn't even know the right questions to ask. And the same is true when it comes to the Bible, especially this portion of the Bible. And while the Bible is different from every other book that's written, it is the inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative Word of God. It's also literature like other books. And so to best understand what follows, you have to understand what comes before. And the narrative that begins in Genesis and Exodus is, is really critical to understand the book of Leviticus. So as we open up the, the Bible's story, the first few chapters, we see God and humanity dwelling together. They're in a state of rest. It's peaceful. Everything's good. This is clear at the end of Genesis 1 and the, the beginning of Genesis 2. This is the way things are supposed to be. This is the aim of God. This is the design of the Creator. It's here we understand that God made people to be with Him, to dwell with Him in a right relationship, to enjoy intimacy and fellowship and union with their Creator, with their God. But as the story continues, we know what happens just a few chapters in. We know what takes place in Genesis 3. We know that sin ruins all this. As Adam and Eve rebel against the rules, the instructions, the design of their creator, they're no longer able to dwell in the presence of God. Genesis 3 makes clear that the relationship between God and his people is severed. It's, it's broken. And the brokenness is pictured in Genesis 3 as they cover themselves up with, with leaves and they, they hid. And the text is, is clear. God is holy. He's perfect. They've transgressed his law. And now they have to go. And so we read near the end of Genesis 3 that they're cut off. They're, they're sent out. They are banished from the garden, sent away from the presence of God. And yet in the midst of the tragedy, God provides such hope. Genesis 3.15, God says the following to the serpent, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And from the opening chapters of the Bible, we, we see that it is humanity that causes the problem and God is going to be the one to provide an answer. This is a most glorious verse in the midst of a horrible situation. One day, a future offspring from the woman, a future seed from the line of Eve is going to come and, and he'll address the devastating effects of sin. He's going to come and he's going to have victory over the serpent. And by his word, he's going to reverse the curse. He's going to right the wrongs. He's going to resolve the problem. He's going to restore what was lost at the fall. But as the story of the Bible continues from there, there are times when this promise is really hard to believe. Is this really going to happen? 
Is this actually going to come to pass? Will this ever take place? And throughout the book of Genesis, the message is clear. A divide exists between God and humanity. And the same reality continues in the second book of the Bible. In Exodus chapter 3, as God reveals himself to Moses at the burning bush, you remember one of the first things he says to him is, do not come near. The place where God's presence is revealed in this unique way, that's holy ground. Moses is a sinful person, and he can't draw near to God. And the same thing takes place in Exodus 19, after God brings the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt, It's at Sinai that he gives them the the terms of the covenant. And before doing that, he communicates to Moses that the people are to set up barriers and, and boundaries, markers around the mountain, because if they come near the mountain and touch it, they die. Again, the point is clear. God's holy. You aren't, and you can't come near. And yet the the following chapters in Exodus, the second half of Exodus, the lesser known half of Exodus, after most of the exciting stuff is done, marks a shift in a really important direction. The people can't come near, but God in his kindness desires to come down to the people. This is what the tabernacle is for. It's going to function as a a meeting place for God and man. Exodus 25.8, God says, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And this verse ought to bring the reader of the Bible much hope, much encouragement. God desires to dwell with his people. He really does. And he's working to make it a reality. And it appears that that a type of restoration is going to take place. Adam and Eve enjoyed the presence of God prior to sin. And now the tabernacle is going to function in such a way that humanity will be able to enjoy life with God again. But when we come to the conclusion of Exodus, all that hope, all that encouragement seems to be dashed. The final chapter of Exodus tells us that the tabernacle has been finished. All the work of construction is completed, and most importantly, the presence of God has now filled it. And so we would hope as readers of the Bible's story that this is the moment when humanity, or at least some of humanity, would be able to enter. Maybe this is the moment when the promise comes to pass. Maybe now the divide that previously separated God and humanity is going to be done away with. However, Exodus 40.35 tells us Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This verse can be a discouraging and a confusing one. Moses can't enter? Moses is the best we have to offer. And if he can't go in, then who can? Will anybody ever be able to enter the presence of God again? Will there ever be a time when people are able to dwell with God in fellowship and union again? And these are really the questions that the book of Leviticus attempts to answer. And if we view it in this way, we see the book for what it really is. Not merely a book of rules and rituals and regulations, but a book that provides a resolution to a problem. A book that makes clear what must take place if humanity is going to be able to dwell in the presence of God again. And upon studying this book, we see the Lord lay out a number of things that have to happen, a handful of things that have to be done to resolve this problem. And this evening, we're only going to look at the first step 
the first thing that must be done if humanity is going to be able to enter the presence of God again. And that is this, there must be sacrifices. If you want to be restored, if the sin problem is going to be dealt with, if you want to enjoy life in the presence of God, then something has to die in your place. Leviticus 1-7 through focuses on the, the sacrificial system as a whole. There's a lot going on in these chapters. There are five major types of sacrifices. There are burnt offerings and grain offerings and peace offerings and sin offerings and guilt offerings. Each of these help us to see a unique aspect of our sin problem. Each of them help us to see a unique aspect in which we are different, far different from God, and what has to take place to resolve that problem. There are countless details and a host of specifics that the Israelites were expected to follow. Some sacrifices were to be a regular and consistent part of their life and worship, while others were only offered occasionally. In some instances, the entire animal sacrifice was offered on the altar, the whole being given over to the Lord, while with others, only part of the animal was offered up, with the rest being consumed by the priests and the the offerer himself. Most of the sacrifices required the shed blood of an animal, but, but some didn't, and on and on we could go. Our goal tonight is not to closely examine every aspect of each sacrifice. Instead, I want to look at this section, chapters 1 through 7, as a larger unit. I want to briefly analyze the sacrificial system as a whole to understand what's going on here. What's the point of all this? What's the significance of this? And what do we do with this today? So in the rest of our time, I want to consider five things that I think we can learn from the sacrificial system. Five things that are necessary to grasp if we want to understand the point and significance of all of this. And if you're sitting there saying there's more than five things, you're right. But we're just going to focus on five. So the first thing we can learn from the sacrificial system is this. Sin is deadly. Sin is deadly. After a careful reading of these opening seven chapters of Leviticus, the amount of blood and death is staggering and shocking. Death, particularly the death of animals as sacrifices for sin, was such a regular part of ancient Israel's life and practice. Their lives, unlike ours today, were so closely intertwined with the notion and the reality of death. It was part of their normal pattern and practice. These chapters, these opening seven chapters, begin to expound on what earlier portions of the Bible have already declared, and that is the reality that sin brings death. This is what God expressly said to Adam in Genesis chapter 2. Verses 16 and 17, here's what we read. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. To disobey God, to go against the commands of God, to chart your own course is to choose the route that leads to death. Sin is what causes humanity to be cut off from God, banished from life in his presence. But Leviticus clearly declares that if we want to enjoy the presence of God again, if if we want to get back to life with God, if we want fellowship and union, then blood must be shed. 
You look at how this is said in some of the opening verses of Leviticus chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Here's what we read. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. If you want to be accepted before the Lord, if you want to be welcomed back into his presence, if you want to enjoy fellowship and life and union with God, then a sacrifice has to be offered. Something has to die in your place. The shed blood of a sacrifice functioning as a substitute is necessary in order to deal with the sin problem. And and this isn't just a generic, general human problem. It, It is a human problem. But it's, a, it's an individual problem. It's a personal problem. This sin problem plagues each and every person. And Leviticus helps us to see that radical steps have to be taken in order for this problem to be dealt with. Look at chapter 1, verses, verses 5 through 8. Here we see the level of involvement that was required on the part of the individual person, the common Israelite the ordinary worshiper. Here is what he has to do with one of the regular required offerings as he brings his sacrifice. Follow along with me starting in verse 5. We read, Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head, the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. Now, now the priests are mentioned here, and they played an important role. Leviticus is going to make clear in the next section that they were essential for Israel's religious life and practice. And here we see them involved in the manipulation of the the blood and, and the arrangement of the pieces of the sacrifice on the altar. But I want you to see that the primary onus is on the worshiper. The weight is on the shoulders of the one who brings the offering. It's not the priest, it's the common Israelite. He's the one who brings the animal. He's the one who kills the animal. And in the case of the bull, as a burnt offering by, by slitting its throat, He's the one who flays the animal and cuts it into smaller pieces. And after this bloody affair, he would be covered head to toe. There wouldn't be a part of this man that was not affected by the slaughter of this animal. This is the work of the worshiper. This is the work of the offerer. This was horrific. This was disturbing and devastating. It was gory and gruesome. No doubt it was an incredibly moving occasion because all throughout the process, the worshiper would be struck with this central reality, this is what I deserve. The text of Leviticus is clear that the the animal is meant to represent the person who offers it. In order to highlight this, for some of the offerings, it's mentioned that the one who brings the animal places his hand on the head of the animal prior to killing it. This was mentioned previously in in Leviticus 1 verse 4, and it appears again many times throughout the book. 
in pressing his hand on the head of the animal, we see the notion of identification. The worshiper is drawing a line of connection between himself and the sacrifice. In putting his hand on the head of the animal, he's making clear, this animal is going to stand in my place. He represents me. I deserve what he's going to endure. I deserve to be killed. I deserve to be destroyed. This is what I've earned due to my sin. And yet the animal, the sacrifice, is going to take what I deserve. He's going to endure it in my place so I can be spared. And in laying his hand on the head of the animal, we also find the idea of a transfer. The animal hasn't sinned and violated the law of God. That's what the worshiper's done. The animal hasn't earned for himself the judgment of God. The worshiper's done that. But in placing his hands on the head of the animal, the sin of the worshiper is symbolically transferred to the animal so that when the animal dies, the worshiper's sins are being dealt with. This brutal sacrificial scene served a vital purpose. It was an up-close and personal reminder that sin is deadly because sin is a gross and horrific offense against the holy God. The worshiper was reminded that he has earned the death, the sacrifice is taking in his place, and he is spared by the mercy of God on the basis of another. And this wasn't just a a one-time thing. The Israelites were commanded to offer particular sacrifices regularly and other ones occasionally. But look at what Leviticus chapter 6 verses 12 and 13 tell us. Here's what we read there. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning. And he shall arrange the burnt offering on it. And shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. The the fire doesn't stop because the sin doesn't stop. The altar is to have a fire going on it continually. The message is clear. In order to be restored to a right relationship with God, there must be a bloody knife and a burning altar. And the ongoing repetitive nature of the the system, as well as the vast multitude of sacrifices that were offered, served as an ongoing reminder of the deadly and devastating effects of human sin. It loudly proclaimed the depths of sin present in the human heart in the undefiled holiness of God. And these realities are critical for us today. Sin has always been a deadly venture. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the Apostle Paul says just a few chapters later, For the wages of sin is death. We've all sinned. That includes ancient Israel, and that includes you and I today. Because of our sin, we've earned the sentence of death. We've violated God's commands. We've gone our own way. We deserve to be cut off from his presence, banished from the source of life forever. But thanks be to God that he made a way where there was no way. In order to be restored to a right relationship with God, a sacrifice must be offered in our place. So the first thing we note from the sacrificial system is that sin is deadly. Either you die for your sin or a sacrifice takes the punishment in your place. The second thing we learn is this, that the best is necessary. The best is necessary. Now there are a number of different sacrifices 
and, and a number of different animals required based on all sorts of factors and qualifications. However, there is a notion that becomes clear as we seek to understand this system as a whole, and that is that the best is necessary. The sacrifices, again, were central to Israel's life and worship, and essential to the notion of the sacrifice is that it has to be costly. A sacrifice had to be just that, an actual sacrifice. It hurts to part with. David spoke of this in 2 Samuel 24, 24, when he said, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. These type of animals, the ones that are most costly, are usually of the best quality. And that's exactly what's given over to the Lord as a sacrifice. This was seen back in Exodus chapter 12, verse 5, in regards to the animals that were used for the Passover. We read there that, The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you must take them from the sheep or the goats. Leviticus 1.3 says something similar. The offering is a burnt offering from the herd. You're to offer a male without defect. You must present it at the entrance of the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. And in Leviticus 22, a chapter addressed to Israel's priests, It speaks about the type of sacrifices that are required and those that were prohibited. Here's what we read in verses 19 and 20. You must present a male without defect from the cattle, sheep, or goats in order that they may be accepted on your behalf. Do not bring anything with a defect because it will not be accepted on your behalf. In order for the substitute to stand in your place and be accepted on your behalf, the best is necessary. The mercy of God is seen in the the many different animals he's willing to accept for the varied sacrifices. Some are large in the case of the bull. Others are small in the case of birds. But the reality that runs throughout it all is that the best is necessary. This is seen in in Malachi 1 verse 8 when when, when God says to Israel, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? And then verse 13 of the same chapter, you bring what's been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? They were required to bring the best. And yet there's another reality that would make many of these offerings an even greater sacrifice. Not only were they required to be without blemish, spotless, without any physical ailment or defect. All throughout these opening seven chapters, we read that these animals that were to be sacrificed were to be brought from the herd or from the flock. These words are repeated all throughout these opening chapters. And they make clear that these animals were to be domestic animals as opposed to wild animals. These were to come from the possession of the offerer, or from someone he's going to get them from, from the possession of another. These are not to be wild animals that he happens to find. These are to be costly. These are to be precious. To give up this animal would be a true sacrifice. And considering this, here's what one commentator said. He wrote, In the overfed West, we can easily fail to realize what was involved in offering an unblemished animal sacrifice. Meat was a rare luxury in Old Testament times for all except the very rich. Yet even we might be shocked if we saw a whole lamb or bull go up in smoke as a burnt offering. 
how much greater pangs must a poor Israelite have felt? And in offering an animal that was of such great value and parting with something that was so tangibly significant to them, the Israelites must have been struck with the reality that sin is no light and trivial matter. It's a huge deal. And it brings with it massive consequences. That they would have seen the reality that sin is deadly. And if the sin problem is going to be dealt with, it necessitates the best sacrifice. The third thing we see from the sacrificial system is this. Faith is required. Faith is required. The Bible doesn't teach anywhere that the human problem can be solved by a mere human solution. Nowhere in the Bible do we read that people can solve their own problem by working hard enough, by following enough rules, by doing enough good things. There's no path to salvation that's paved with the works of man. And that goes for those living in the Old Testament time period, and that applies to us as believers in the church today. The way a person was made right in the Old Testament before the Lord is the way a person is made right before God today by God's grace through faith. This was true for Abraham in Genesis 15, 6. We read, he believed the Lord and he, that is God, counted it to him as righteousness. Only by the grace of God through faith can a person be justified. Only then can someone be declared right in the sight of God. The Apostle Paul wrote the following in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This isn't of your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works so that no one may boast. And Leviticus is in step with the same message. Leviticus is not teaching that if the Israelites simply offered up a high-quality sacrifice, they'd be one step closer to getting to God, as if this can be achieved or accomplished by mere human action. Leviticus isn't teaching there are a series of hoops you jump through, and if you do so, you enjoy life with God again. It's not teaching that there's a ladder to heaven and if you offer sacrifices, you get to move up one rung. Mere human work and effort achieves nothing. Simply offering up an animal as a sacrifice doesn't accomplish anything by itself. In order for the right external actions to be pleasing to God, they have to be coupled with proper internal motivations. In order for the sacrifice to be acceptable to God, it has to be offered by a person that possesses faith in God. If the work of the hand is going to be effective, then the heart has to be at work as well. Now, this isn't mentioned point blank in any particular verse in Leviticus, but it is implied along the way. The reason the ancient Israelites would continually offer up costly sacrifices God commands the reason they'd repetitively show up at the entrance of the tabernacle with a costly offering is because they believe what God says is true. That the presence of God really is in the tabernacle. And that a sacrifice must be offered if the sin problem is going to be dealt with. And yet there were certainly those who offered sacrifices without the proper heart motive. Without God honoring inclinations, without any true acknowledgement of their sin, no real desire to love and serve the Lord. Just as there are those who fill churches every Sunday, who have a heart that's cold toward God and distant from Him. If the Israelites didn't offer up their sacrifices with a right heart, it was all vain. 
And so it is for those who attend worship services and appear to be externally involved and yet have no proper motivation or intention in the heart. All spiritual activity is then useless. And so far we've mentioned that the sacrificial system teaches us that sin is deadly, the best is necessary, and that faith is required in order to be pleasing to God and for the sin problem to be dealt with. The fourth thing we learn is this, that restoration is the aim. Restoration is the aim. The story of the Bible begins and ends with God and humanity dwelling together in a peaceful state of rest. The problem is sin, it's rebellion against God, it's treason against the King of Kings. It is the reason that humanity is cut off from God. However, God made people to be with him. He made people to enjoy intimate fellowship and union with him. He made people as his image bearers to live in his presence, to enjoy all the blessings and benefits that come with life in the presence of God. He made them to love and serve God, to worship and adore God, that he might receive the glory he alone is due. And the sacrificial system shows us what must be done in order to restore what was lost. It makes clear that the path to peace requires death and blood. In order for sins to be dealt with, in order for sins to be forgiven, a sacrificial substitute has to stand in your place. And through the shed blood of the undefiled sacrifice, coupled with a heart that is repentant of sin and dependent upon the Lord, restoration is possible. And this is seen primarily in the peace offering, which is the focus of chapter 3 and portions of chapter 7. In other sacrifices, particularly the, the burnt offering, the whole animal is placed on the altar. It was given in totality to the Lord. But with the peace offering, something different takes place. Part of the animal is placed on the altar, the best, most desirable parts given over to the Lord. However, Leviticus 7.15 tells us that something else happens with the parts that remain. Here's what we read. And the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving shall be eaten on the day of his offering. He shall not leave any of it until the morning. When it comes to the, the peace offering, some of the animals burned on the altar, sacrificed to the Lord, but some of it is eaten by the worshiper himself. This portion of the animal that remained was consumed by the worshiper near the tabernacle, near the presence of God. This sacrifice was typically given as an expression of thanksgiving and an acknowledgement of the fact that peace is possible by the grace of God through the shed blood of a sacrifice. The meal that was enjoyed here is a, is a picture of table fellowship, a declaration that the sacrifices have been offered and they've restored a measure of fellowship between God and the worshiper. Sacrifice is the means by which God and man are able to dwell together peacefully. Restoration can only take place and reconciliation is only a reality if sin is first dealt with. And if sin is dealt with, then peace with God can be restored. One Bible teacher put it this way. In the sacrificial meal, God granted a tangible pledge of his promised blessings. The enjoyment of eating the meat was a physical reminder of all the other blessings that attended the faithful observance 
of the covenant. It was a physical illustration of all the benefits that may be enjoyed by those who are at peace with God. And surely we no longer practice the the peace offering. We no longer make any animal sacrifices. But the Lord hasn't left us without a tangible and physical reminder of his promised blessing to us. For those who are part of the people of God today, we have the the Lord's Supper. We have communion. We celebrated it this morning. It is on the one hand a sobering and weighty practice because no one comes into the presence of God lightly. And on the other hand, it is a most joyous occasion as we remember the death we deserve. We remember our sins have been forgiven. We reflect on the fact that we're at peace with God. We've been restored to a right relationship with Him by the shed blood of the sacrifice that was offered in our place. And so far we've mentioned that the the sacrificial system teaches us that sin is deadly, the best is necessary, faith is required, and that restoration is the aim. This brings us to the fifth and final thing that I want to note we can learn from the sacrificial system, and that is this, that Jesus is the end. Now there are many other things that we could mention, and there are a whole host of other things we could learn from these chapters, and we could do a detailed study of each individual sacrifice and all it entails, but maybe the most important thing we could learn is that the whole system was temporary from the start. It was never meant to be an end in and of itself. It was always designed as a pointer to something that would come later, something far better. The repetitive nature of the sacrificial system makes clear it couldn't ultimately accomplish what needs to be done. Hebrews 10.4 says this, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And the enjoyment of the meal near the presence of God consumed outside the tabernacle, that was a glorious moment, but no doubt it left the genuine worshiper wanting and longing for more. More fellowship, deeper union, greater intimacy with God. Jesus is the one who makes this possible. Jesus is the only one who makes this possible. The sacrificial system finds its fulfillment and culmination in his perfect life and his atoning death as the ultimate sacrificial substitute offered in the place of all who trust in him. Jesus is the one who took upon himself the deadly consequences of sin. We read in John one twenty nine about Jesus, it says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He does what the sacrificial system could never do. He does what the the bulls and goats could never accomplish. By his sacrifice, he actually takes away the sin of those who look to him. The Apostle Paul wrote the following in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was treated as if he had sinned and he died the death sinners deserved to die so that sinners like us might look to him and be spared the death we deserve and instead experience the fullness of life. Jesus was the very best sacrifice that has ever been offered. He alone is the perfect spotless sacrifice without any defect. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says the following to believers, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things as silver or gold, 
but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. The author of Hebrews wrote this in Hebrews 9, verses 12 through 14. He, that is Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Jesus is the the object of our faith. We look to him or we look in vain. Jesus said of himself in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. But if you go through him, you get to the Father every time. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He pays it all. And by the grace of God through faith in Jesus, we are freed from the punishment we deserve. If you look to him, you can trust that he took the judgment of God in your place, that you might be spared. Jesus alone offers restoration and reconciliation Our sin has caused a divide. Our rebellion has resulted in us being cut off from the presence of God. But through faith in Jesus, we can be reconciled to a right relationship with God. What was once lost can be restored. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Jesus, you can have peace. You can enjoy the rest that God offers those who look to him. You don't have to be at odds with God. You don't have to be at war with your creator. You can be on friendly terms. You can enjoy rest, but only through Jesus. And Jesus himself declared the end of the sacrificial system when he offered up himself. The animal sacrifices had come to an end because the sacrifice they pointed to was about to take place. So Jesus said these now famous words in John 19.30, it is finished. The debt has been paid. The job is done. The mission is complete. The perfect sacrifice has been offered. So the question is, have you trusted in him? Have you looked to him with a heart of faith, a, a heart attitude that is repentant of your sin and is expressing total dependence on Jesus as the only means by which you can be saved? And if you've never trusted in him, then, then the debt of sin remains on your account. And it is a massive and weighty debt, one you could never pay in full on your own. A perfect sacrifice is required to satisfy this debt. And the sacrifice Jesus offered is the only sufficient one. If you don't look to him, you have no hope. You're cut off from God, you're banished from him, and you'll experience an eternity apart from him in judgment. If you fail to look to Christ, you forfeit the only escape of God's wrath. So look to him. And if you think you have trusted in him, then examine your life. Make sure your external actions are a proper reflection of what you claim to believe on the inside. And consider all that Jesus has done for you. 
Ephesians 2, 12 and 13 says this, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The thing Moses couldn't do, the thing the Israelites couldn't do, they couldn't come near. You and I can draw near. And in light of that, give your entire life and service to him. There's no animal sacrifice to offer, but there are sacrifices to offer. Romans 12.1 calls us to offer up our bodies as living sacrifices. Hebrews 13.15 instructs us to offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Let this characterize you as a follower of Christ. May we never forget the sacrifice of Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross for every person who looks to him. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for the truth of your word. We're thankful for timeless truth that comes from a, a book like Leviticus, Lord, often neglected and yet full of rich truth, practical for our lives. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be people who love the whole counsel of your word, that we would be people who, who seek to drink from the depths of the well of your word each and every day. And Lord, we pray that the truths we've mentioned this evening about the sacrificial system in ancient Israel and, and the way that it points to our sin problem and the restoration that is offered to those who look to Jesus, Lord, I pray that you'd help each and every person in here to do that. Lord, I pray for those who, who have never trusted in him, that you'd prick their conscience, that you would that you'd work in their hearts, Lord, that they might have trouble falling asleep tonight until they are right before you by faith in Christ. And for those who have trusted, Lord, would you help us to live in accordance with that? Would you help us to walk worthy of the calling to which we've been called? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.